I am a professor of psychology at Wheaton College, which is a little bit further, oh, I guess that would be east from here. And I teach uh, psychology courses in neuroanatomy and pharmacology in our clinical program, as well as undergraduate courses in neuroscience. And, uh, and what I want to do is spend a little bit of time with you today sharing how I have come to understand this issue of pornography. Um, uh, pornography is not something that is sort of a part of my history. I know so you, you kind of saw the story here. Some people just sort of always assume that like I'm a recovering addict or something like that. It's not. For me, I've come at this question as one that's more of a scholarly endeavor. It's one that is tied to my own research. Because I do research in the neural mechanisms that underlie sexual arousal and sexual behaviors. Maybe that's not something that you have ever thought about before. But there are scientists who actually do brain surgery on rats and map this stuff out. And that sounds a little freaky and strange and weird. Uh, but, but just kind of sit back and relax. Because I want to address what I think is a problem that we have in our culture. And it's a problem that I like to sum up with this particular image. You guys remember this? Remember the dress? Yeah, it kind of went viral. And, and there were people who would say, hey, the dress is black and blue. And there were other people who would look at it and say, no, it's white and gold. Actually, in my house, there was discord. Because my wife saw it as black and blue, and I saw it as white and gold. And we were looking at the same image on my phone. And it struck me that as a, as a scientist and as a psychologist who studies these kinds of you know, neurological processes, that there were probably a, a handful of things that I could use from my neuroscience background to help me make sense of this. And so there are a couple things. You know, we kind of ask the question, what's with this dress? You know, why do some people see it as black and blue? Why do some people see it as white and gold? And, uh, and what I realized was that there was a handful of principles that you could use to explain the difference between why people were seeing this dress in different colors. The first is a question of color constancy. It was difficult for me to see the dress as black and blue because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine a dress that would change colors. I mean, like, clothing, like, is one color, right? It doesn't change colors. So this notion of color constancy was something that kind of got me stuck, got me locked in. Well, another is the issue of perceptual boundaries. That dress, you'll notice, had edges to it, right? It was an image. You couldn't tell if it was a person wearing the dress or if it was hanging on a rack somewhere or if it was maybe on a mannequin. You, you couldn't tell because, well, there are boundaries to that image. And when you put boundaries in place, you can't see the larger picture of where, what's going on around the dress. Another is this question of white balance, about exposure, white exposure. If you've had, you know, a phone or something, you ever try to take a picture and, like, it doesn't quite look right and you change the lighting settings, like incandescent, fluorescent, you know, outside, it changes the picture, right? We don't know if this dress was actually inside under incandescent light or if it was outside. We've, we, we, we don't know what's going on. The amount of light that you are shining on it is important in helping you understand what's going on with it. It's also a digital picture, right? The, the whole reason this dress sort of went viral is because uh, I believe a woman sent the picture of this dress. It was part of, a, I think, a, a wedding uh, party. They were trying to pick dresses. And, uh, and she sent, said, what do you think of this? And she said, 
wait a minute, I thought the colors were black and blue. Why do you have this white and gold dress? And she says, what do you mean? It, it is black and blue. It's not white and gold. And they were looking at the same image, just like my wife and I were looking at the same image and seeing things differently. And so what all of this says is that context is incredibly important. Did you know that people will see the color of the dress differently across gender lines? Women will be much more likely to see it in one set of colors as opposed to men. There's also an age difference as well, that the older you are, the more predisposed you will be to seeing it in one set of colors versus another. And now you're wondering, what in the world does this have to do with pornography? Well, it has a lot to do with it. The way that pornography is material that is produced, it has a specific kind of lighting, it has a certain set of boundaries, right? It has a particular way of going about making some things constant, some scripts are always constant. And so what we see is that under some conditions, you will have an entire generation of people, those of us who were, let's say, over 35, who grew up with a notion of sexuality that caused us to see it as black and blue. Of course, this is, this is what sexuality is about. But if you are younger than 35 and you have grown up, or maybe some of you are even you know, in high school, growing up in a world that is, you can get however many naked pictures of however many people you want on your phone, on your television, on your iPad, whenever you want, wherever you want, as long as you've got Wi-Fi or 4G, right? That's a world that I did not grow up in. But that's your world. So you don't see sexuality as black and blue, you see it as white and gold. How can you not see sex as white and gold? And so when generations talk to one another, there's confusion and, and, and the lack of clarity because the older generations see sex in this way and younger generations see sex in this way. Now, <coughs> perhaps, perhaps we have to be trained into the way that we think about sexuality. Now, I did not grow up in a Christian family. I grew up in a family that um, um, I don't even think we call itself nominally or culturally Christian. We, I think, sort of fancied ourselves as sort of pseudo-pagan. Like, we didn't really kind of have any religious traditions. I remember going to church twice. Once was for my uncle's wedding. When, uh, when he got married, I was, I was pretty young, and I was one of those junior ushers, right? They're so cute when you put those little guys in tuxedos, right? And I noticed that there were all these pretty colors in this church, and people kept doing this a lot. I had, why are they touching themselves like that? That's kind of strange. And the other time was when I went with my brother. I guess we had gone. We'd been invited, and we went to Sunday school. And, uh, and my memory is that my brother actually threw up in front of the felt board. <laughs> and so those are like my memories of church. You know, people touching themselves at weddings and my brother throwing up. And so I grew up basically with my parents teaching me this about sex. Just don't get anyone pregnant and don't get any diseases. And that was my story. Those were the rules that I was given, right? Just don't get anyone pregnant and don't get any diseases. And so what I, I have adopted is kind of a, a very 
deficient way of thinking about sex as a young man. Well, I did not have access to the stuff that young people have access to now. It's not an issue of me changing the channel, right? It's an issue of it's on every channel, and I don't have an off button on this remote. I can't get away from it. I just want to play my video game. Why do they have to have these half-clad women in my video game? I just want to buy my raspberries. Why do I have to walk past a cosmopolitan with a half-naked, not like 90% naked woman? I'm just trying to buy my raspberries here. I just want to look at the score of the Arsenal-Bournemouth match over in England this morning. Why are there weird kind of cheerleaders over here on the side of my webpage? I can't turn it off but I'm a 45-year-old man. If you're 14, 15, 16, 20, that's your world. That's all you've ever known. And so maybe it's not even an issue of you know, black, and you know, black and blue or white and gold, or it's all black or it's all white, but maybe there's this sort of 50 shades of grayness that we have as a culture now been willing to accept, the pornified culture that confuses us, that thinks that even, you know, any kind of exposure of skin somehow is sexual. <laughs> What's so funny? Does even, you know, the exposure of skin make us anxious? Do we misinterpret nakedness in all of its form as being erotic and sensual and sexual? If, if I'm in the shower, I probably want to not have any clothes on so I can get clean, right? I'm not sort of doing porn. It's just my body. It's just who I am. It's being in the state of undress. And so what we find is that we have, a, we have become a culture where all forms of simple exposure of skin are seen as solicitous. I'm trying to get you to be attracted to me. Now we can laugh about that. We can laugh about it. But if you're going through puberty, that laughter is anxiety. You need someone to help you make sense of it. You need someone to teach you a better way to think about when you are aroused when you see someone when you are excited by them. Because we live in a world that talks about sex in a pornified way. And make no mistake, pornography is a form of sexual exploitation. There are different ways that people are exploited. On the one side, you have people who are exploited in the production of this material, don't you? The women, mostly, and the men, who are vulnerable people. Financially, they need the money. Or they've got, uh, you know, a, a drug habit that they've got to support. Or they've been traumatized, they've been abused. And they're trying to work out their own trauma through their sexuality. And they're getting paid for it. And so you see that, the sh if, and even the language that we use to talk about, the shelf life of someone who goes into the pornography industry is very, very short. And it's very, very damaging to them psychologically. They come out of it different people. So on the production side, it's an industry that chews people up, vulnerable people, and spits them out. 
Remember that the next time you're tempted to look at some of those images. On the other side, you've got <coughs> the consumption side. And while women are disproportionately exploited over there, men are disproportionately exploited over here. Because make no mistake, the reason why we have this proliferation of sexual materials is not just because there's a demand for it, but it's a demand that we have connected to an economic drive. You may think all of those sites are free, but there are ad revenues that are being generated every time you click. It is not free. It's not free in the human cost, certainly. And while you maybe aren't paying for it, someone else is profiting off of your voyeuring as you are looking, as you are watching. And it's coming out of your pocket. You are being exploited. And uh, the, we kind of were talking about the commercials at the Super Bowl today. If you want to try to play a little game, the, the, the game within a game today, how about trying to count how many commercials are using sex to get you to buy something? What percentage will use a half-naked woman walking around with a hamburger or some race car driver unzipping her clothing to get you to get a website? Count them and see how many. Because we live in a culture where most of the time what's going to happen today is the fathers and the sons are going to probably be watching this game together. Mothers and daughters there too. And that woman's going to walk around with that hamburger and everyone's just going to go silent. And that silence says something. It says something to that girl who's watching it. It says something to that boy who's watching it. It says something about what that father will stick up and say, hey, that's wrong. That's what we do in my house, by the way. When I see something that I think is sexually exploitative, I say, that's wrong, and here's why I think that's wrong. Hey, Super Bowl, hey, there's the cheerleaders. Wow, why don't cheerleaders get names on the back of their uniforms? Why don't they get numbers? Do we care about their names? Do we care about identifying them? Football players do. Numbers are critically important for the football players. You can't have that number and be in that position, bro. You can't have a, you know, a 67 number and be on the end of the line unless you, well, you got to declare yourself an eligible receiver, right? But the cheerleaders, man, maybe it's because they don't even have enough fabric to put their names on the back of their uniform. <laughs> See, these are the conversations that I have with my son. Because we need to find ways that are healthy and mature in talking about sexuality rather than being silent about it. Rather than just assuming that everybody is involved in watching it. And maybe the young people today aren't just watching it, they're making their own stuff with their cell phones and distributing it to one another. Because that's the culture they've been raised in. That's just flirting. That's not child pornography. That's just me flirting with, you know, this girl that I like. You know, I just want to take a picture of myself so, so she'll like me. Or I'm going to take a picture of myself so he'll like me. Or he'll be interested in me. Or maybe no one's interested in me, so maybe I'll take a picture of this and maybe someone will be interested in me. That's their world. That's their white and gold world. And we look at it from our blue and black world saying, what in the world are you doing? Because 
the culture is so pornographied. It's so pornified. If you, and let's even stop and think about that for a second. Pornography is a big world, big word. Let's shorten it so we can make it cute. It's just porn, right? Just porn. My name is William. Bill. Because when you shorten something and you give it a nickname, you make it endearing. You normalize it, don't you? And so it's not even just pornography. Pornography. Four syllables. It's porn. And it's so normalized that now we talk about food porn. Food porn? What the heck is that? Oh, that's a beautiful dish that I have. Check this out, man. I'm out at Maggiano's. Take a, let me take a picture of my meal. This is, you know, this is food porn. No, that's a picture of your meal. <laughs> eat it. Just eat your food. I'm happy that you're at a restaurant. It is pretty. Eat it. But we call it food porn. So it's spilling vi video game porn, man. Check this out. I'm on Minecraft. Or, you know, Fallout 4. Well, check this out. This is video game porn. Really? We've so embraced this kind of language of exploitation that we've cutified it. And we've allowed it to spread into other parts of our vocabulary. <coughs> so porn is just normal. Porn is a good thing, by the way. It's awesome. It's great. It doesn't hurt anybody, right? No one's being hurt. And that's a conversation for another time. In a couple weeks, I'll be going down to Florida to talk about the connections between the pornography industry and human trafficking. Did you know that pornography is used to groom people into the sex industry? It's used to groom people who've never thought about committing some acts. Say, this is how you do it. And by the way, when you do it, we're going to film you and we're going to put it up on our website and make money off of it. And by the way, if you think about leaving, we're going to take this and we're going to send this to your family. What? Welcome to the, to the real world. That image that you think is just a couple of people being paid to have good sex with each other is a person being trafficked. Could be. Do you know? Or do you just assume that if it's online, everybody's consenting? So when we stop and we think about pornography, as it doesn't really hurt anyone. Oh, no, it's hurting lots of people. The performers, the people who are watching it, that man who can't stop viewing the pornography, that film that you just saw, you know who's hurt by it? Him and his wife. Because pornography has become his mistress, hasn't it? And she can't even compete with a non-human with how many petabytes of naked pictures. She can't compete with that. You think that that doesn't harm her? You think it doesn't harm his children who are more and more disconnected from their dad? Because he just sort of watches the Super Bowl ad and starts to salivate. You think that doesn't wound that daughter? You think that doesn't confuse the son? Make no mistake, it's kind of like smoking. I'm, I'm smoking, and you're taking in all my secondhand smoke. I'm getting the buzz off of the nicotine, but you're just getting the secondhand smoke. So it's not just me smoking, it's 
what's happening. It's not just me watching the pornography. It's you being affected by it relationally. And this should make us uncomfortable. It should make us really uncomfortable. And even that kind of language of smoking, right? Uh, you see that the drug addiction language is really popular now. We talk about porn addiction because we've got to keep it cute. We've got to keep it small. So porn addiction, we use the drug language. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go in through withdrawal or I've developed a tolerance or I'm desensitized to it. And we use this drug language in such a way that we sort of pathologize it. And we have to be careful because sometimes when we pathologize things, what we do is we give people permission to not behave well. You're an addict, you can't control yourself anymore. It's not your fault. Do you think the wife, that helps her out? Do you think the kids, that helps them out? Do you think the people who are being produced are now okay because that guy's an addict, so I have to just be kind of chewed up so that this addict can get what they want. But he's not in control of himself. Oh, no. We need to think clearly about this because that's what you've been doing in this church, hasn't it been, for the last couple of weeks? Trying to think about these different types of cultural issues and how you engage them in a way that is countercultural, in a way that challenges the way that the world talks about these things. Because pornography is not a drug. It's not crack cocaine for your eyes. You are made for sexual intimacy. Crack cocaine is chemical sex that you smoke and it gives you the rush of the pleasure that comes when you're intimate with someone. You're not made for drugs. You're made for intimacy. And there are appropriate boundaries in different types of intimate relationships, aren't there? I have dear close friends. My, you know, Ed, my friend that I, I saw earlier, my freshman uh, roommate, walked in the back, immediately went right back to that place. We hadn't seen each other in 25 years, and we're right back in that intimate place. And I'll go home and I'll be with my wife, intimate place. I'll be with my junior, my daughter, intimate place. I'll be with my son, eighth grader, intimate place. My fifth grade daughter, intimate place. The, the friends that are coming over, the youth group workers, we have this intimacy with one another because we live life with one another. And I don't do things with my daughters that I do with my wife. I don't do things with my brothers that I do with my sisters. You see, sex is about family, too. That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? You're not just saved from hell. You are saved into God's family. And we are God's family. And so when we look around the, look around the room, your sisters, your brothers... You're not potential sex partners. You're family. And we talk about each other in that way. You guys don't have to worry about me seducing your wives or your daughters. It's not who I am. You women, you don't have to worry about that with me. We think rightly about each other. And we talk in a mature way. We're not going to be silent and snicker about it, be uncomfortable about it. We address it, we hit it head on, and we speak truth into it. Because what's happened is, as I've kind of spent a little bit of time looking at brain scans, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm coming at it from the brain scan logic. So, you know, we got some pictures here perhaps we can take a peek at. You know, I can show you all kinds of brain scans of people when they're looking at pornography. And there on the left you see the men, and there on the right you see the females. 
uh, the, the yellows are the higher levels of activation. And in the, uh, the top there, that A panel, and compare it to the D panel, you see that those regions in men that are highly activated are the same regions that are connected and involved in heroin addiction. But do we want to say that men can't control themselves? You know, one thing that I haven't mentioned in some of the other times that I've shared this is that this is what happens when you put men into a brain scanner and show them this. This is the pattern that you get. You know what changes that pattern? Telling them that you would like them to control their impulses. Just the knowledge that something's coming and the willingness to sort of self-regulate your arousal dampens these, these yellows down into just dark reds. Some of these dark reds into nothing. You see, we go through life mindless, not being able to take all of those thoughts captive. And when we grab those, when at our house, the Super Bowl commercial comes on, oh, there's dead, aha, see, they're trying to get me to buy alcohol with that woman there. That's what they're trying to do. What's her name, by the way? She's got a name, doesn't she? Oh, man, she is pretty. Yeah, there's nothing, I'm not going to deny that she's pretty, but she's not your mom, come on. I don't care how pretty you are. I'm not leaving that lady over there. You guys don't have to worry about that. But they're trying to sell us something, aren't they? What are they trying to sell us? That's how we address it. That's how we hit it. And so all these different brain images, they, you know, that, that's kind of my thing. And, and you know, we can talk afterwards more about it. Because there's a lot of research now out there suggesting that we are neurologically being groomed into seeing the world as yellow and white. And some people have been neurologically groomed into seeing the world as black and blue. Now, I want to give you a couple ways of addressing this, because you will find people who say, well, what's wrong with porn? Porn's fine. At the end of the day, there are three major sexual ethics. And so if, if you want to write this down to remember for later, go ahead. There's one ethic that is a rule-based ethic. These are the rules. They're called consequentialist ethics. They say, we don't, this is the rule that we follow because if we don't follow this rule, this happens. This is a consequence. There's another set of rules that say, well, there's actually a set of moral principles that we should follow. That's what we use as our sexual ethic. And then there's a third ethic that is what we would call a virtue ethic. This is what is virtuous. This is kind of what we need to use as our guide, as our anchor. So we've got the rule, consequentialist ethic, we've got the moral principle ethic, and then we've got the virtue ethic. <clears throat> the consequentialist ethic, the rule-based ethic, runs something like this. This is the rule. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt do this. Thou shalt do that. Thou shalt not do this or that. And Ten Commandments. There's a number of them that are pretty obvious, right? Thou shalt not kill. Why? Well, because... Thou shalt not kill. Why? I don't know, because when you kill people, they die. And dying's bad, right? Okay. Well, don't kill me, too, by the way. But these, these rule-based ethics oftentimes are rooted in sort of self-interests, right? We don't do that because that would hurt me, and I don't want to be hurt. Or I follow this rule because it makes me feel good. And this is why. And so whatever makes me feel good is kind of my, my rule. That's a very egocentric, a very self-centered way of 
kind of putting your ethic together, isn't it? But you could also say, well, uh, forget about it. Let's get outside of ourselves. Let's say what's ever this, the best for the most people. Philosophers would call this a utilitarian perspective, right? It's the utility. How do we maximize the good and minimize the bad for the most people? And you might be familiar with the phrase, the ends justify the means, right? So even though we're going to smash these people here, these performers get destroyed, we maximize the good for the consumers. So it's ethically okay for us to do that. That's a utilitarian way of going about it. I don't like those, by the way. I don't think those are a good thing. Now, we do have them in the Christian faith, right? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet. All the thou shalt nots, and there's a lot of them. But there's also a lot of the do unto others that we need to pay attention to. So that's the, the kind of the rule-based one. Well, if, if, you've, if you have children, you will know that the rules don't usually last for very long before the question, well, why, comes along, right? Thou shalt not kill. Why? Do you want to die? <gasps> no. Notice that's egocentric, right? Thou shalt not kill. Why? Do you want me to die? Do you want your dad to die? you want your mom to die? Ugh. Utilitarian. Okay, so we killed just because we'd be killing someone else's mom or dad or brother or sister. Well, maybe thou shalt not kill is anchored into a principle that we honor life. We value life. That's why we don't kill. We want to be a culture that values life. Oh, okay. That's good. So the, the, the moral principle ethics runs something like this. And perhaps you've heard of some of them. This is how you behave sexually because you want to be pure. There's a purity ethic, isn't there? I mean, you wouldn't want to do that act because that act would make you impure. You'd be polluted if you did that. Well, there's sort of an egocentrist kind of approach there, isn't there? But we use the language of purity in the church a lot. And that comes with some really negative consequences because the gospel is about redemption, by the way. It's about kind of sin being washed away. And by the way, also this sort of belief that we really aren't pure to begin with. My children aren't pure. They're not really innocent. They may be inexperienced sexually, but purity is not like some sort of, you know, like you're treading water to like not let bad things happen to you. That's a wrong way of thinking about purity. Or maybe if the, the purity ethic is uncomfortable, it's fidelity, right? That we're monogamous, that we're faithful. Okay, that's another good one. There's other ones out there too that are Christian. Roman Catholics have the principle of natural law. That, you know, male and female body parts, they go together in this way, children happen. And so that's our principle that's going to govern why we don't use contraception, So we need to kind of be able to detect what are the principles here. Because there are principles outside the church. Principles of, oh, let's just say you've perhaps heard something like responsible love. Love does no harm. Okay. So as long as you're not harming someone, it's okay. Sounds good. So if I choose to engage in an act with this person over here, as long as it doesn't physically hurt my wife or she doesn't find out about it, it's okay. Ooh, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. 
Or what about a, uh, another principle that's like maybe like the lowest hanging fruit? Consent. As long as the people consent, it's okay. Wow. That's really low hanging fruit. So who can consent? Can a 14-year-old consent? Can a 12-year-old consent? Can a person who is addicted to heroin really consent then? That's the lowest hanging fruit you got and that's what you're going for? Or maybe we think about sex as, you know, it's about justice, it's about autonomy. I have to have my needs met in the way that I want them to be met. We need to be careful in chasing after this low-hanging principle fruit. Because the rules should be rooted in a principle, but perhaps that principle should be the governing character of the person, the virtuous person. Do Christians have a virtuous person ethic? Do we have maybe one person who is the epitome of virtue? But you know, we're kind of lazy. So rather than really figure out who this Jesus character is, we just say, ask the question, what would Jesus do? Which is a good question. But if you don't really know who Jesus is, you wouldn't know how he would answer that question or what he would do. Because I think oftentimes we have a very cheap way of thinking about the gospel. <coughs> it's how we're saved from hell rather than how we are saved into God's family. See, my sexual ethic is the way that I sort of retreat to when I'm asked these questions. Well, what is, you know, what is your sexual ethic? Do you got time? Because it's long. It's a story. And here's the stories that are out there. Some people's stories that dictate their ethic are the ones that I hear, are, and as a scientist are oftentimes, they're what I'll call the animal story. Sex is about you being an animal. That's what your body does. They do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Isn't that a song from like years ago? You're just an animal. Sex is what animals do. So don't get too, you know, all weirded out by it. All your religion and all your ethics are just sort of there. They're unnecessary. There's no moral or theological dimension to it. No, that's a bad story. That's not the gospel story. There's incredible theological, spiritual, and moral weight given to our sexuality. <coughs> Second story is what I'll call the ghost story. You are really just a ghost living in a meat and bone sack that has different body parts. That's really all you are. And when you die, that ghost is going to go to heaven. That's who you really are. You're just a ghost driving the machine. That's all it is. And your sexuality is part of the machine. And it's kind of not really that important. And so what we adopt is this very negative view of our own sexuality, that it's this thorn in our flesh, the lust of the flesh. Oh, I hate it. I hate my body. If only I could just be rid of that. Oh, God forbid I'd be rid of my body. God, if he, God forbid that I'd be rid of my sexual impulses, my desire to know people. Because not all sexual impulses for intimacy are inherently genital. I have a sexual 
drive and connection with my son because we share similar bodies, and so I know him and I understand him in a way that's very different than I understand my daughter's. But there is nothing about my relationship with my children that involves my genitals. But it's still sexual. My genitals were needed to have children, weren't they? Certainly. But there are appropriate boundaries. It's not just, you know, my body's bad. We are. You're going to confess in the creed here soon. You believe in not the immortality of your ghost, of your soul, but the resurrection of the body. That's what Christians confess. Third story is what we'll call the romance story. This notion that your sexuality is something that so desperately has to be satisfied that life is not worth living if it's not gratified in the way that you want it gratified. Sort of Romeo and Juliet kind of thing, right? My impulses, I must chase my impulses in whatever direction they go. And if I can't have them satisfied, then I'm not living a life that's worth living. And that's the narrative. By the way, that ghost narrative is one we hear in the church a lot. This, go, this, this romance narrative, this romance story, is what the culture is being saturated in and what they are ingesting daily. They've ingested it so well that they've even got little categories about how to talk about their own experiences. Gay, straight, lesbian, bisexual. All those letters are categories, filters, way they see the black and white dress. And it has to be satisfied in that way. Or else they will not really truly be alive, truly be human. The world sees the dress as white and gold. The church sees the dress as black and blue. But maybe... Maybe, just maybe, if we took that dress and we put it out in the full light of the sun, we might find that it's actually green. Maybe we have a bad understanding of the gospel because maybe we've been taught poorly or maybe we weren't taught anything at all. And so we learned that sex is dirty, sex is, sex is unpleasant. What's really important is your soul. Or maybe we've learned if this isn't satisfied in the way that I want, then, you know what, I'm not gay or straight or, or, or any of that. I'm actually pornosexual. I'm oriented towards pornography, not even a real person. Well, maybe there's an understanding of the gospel of Jesus loving his church that I can embrace as a husband because I'm called to love my wife as Jesus loves the church. So I'm not gay, straight, lesbian, or bisexual or any of those letters. I'm D. I'm donosexual. I'm oriented towards her, and as I keep making choices that orient me towards her, and I'm faithful to her, I become more and more tuned into just her. And that is how I tell my story of my own sexuality, because it fits within the bigger picture of the gospel of Christ. I think that we don't have a big enough picture of the gospel. And when we do understand, if we read all of Scripture and not just cherry-pick the verses that help us feel good in the moment or grab onto a verse and treat it as a talisman that's going to save us in a time of trial. But when you get the whole picture of the gospel, when you get who Jesus really is, you will follow those rules because that is who he is. 
and he is beautiful. And he loves his bride well. That's why I'm donosexual. I've yet to meet someone who didn't kind of have their mind kind of blown by that when I connected my love for my wife back to the gospel. Because that's what the gospel does. It changes everything in the way that you see the world. All of your relationships with your children, with your spouse, your parents, your coworkers, your friends, everything you see is changed. And it's not just, how do I think rightly about this issue? How do I think rightly about this issue? How do I think rightly about that issue? How do I think rightly about this issue? It's deepening in our understanding of what the gospel is, and you begin to see things in different colors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are so lost, and we cannot control the culture that we live in. We cannot control the things that are done to us. We cannot control the fact that we are born into this world in sin and that we are broken and that we have such a desperate need for a Savior. But we come before you and we thank you. Heavenly Father, maker of the universe, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our great redeemer, that your blood cleanses us from all sins, sexual and every other. And as we come to communion, we remember. We remember that you died on a cross, that your blood was shed for us. And Holy Spirit, we pray that even now as we come and we see the world differently, that you would transform our minds, that we would be sanctified, that we would not be pushed towards depravity, but we would be pushed towards holiness. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love, for your grace. I thank you for your family. I thank you that we are able to learn from older women and men, spiritual aunts and uncles who would teach us to see the world rightly. I thank you for your word that we have access to, that we can read at our leisure. I pray we would not be cavalier with it, that we would not take advantage of it and forget that it is a mighty source of strength. And I thank you for your spirit and for the fellowship of the saints. And it's in your name, Lord Christ, that I, I pray these things because there is no other name under heaven that is given to us by which we may be saved. Amen. Well, if uh, you realize during the course of uh, Dr. Struthers' message that you know, there are behaviors, there are cycles that apply to your life, and in a crowd this size, there's many that that does apply to. We want to provide um, some help. We want to provide some resources, some hope for you. And so there's four resources I want to point out here uh, as places you can go to provide that help for you. Um, the first is our care night on Tuesday nights. We have uh, ministries that provide, you know, help for those that have habits and addictions and issues and we actually have classes for men and women in regards to sexual issues and pornography so I encourage you to go online sign up if you want to talk to somebody about care night and go to uh, our welcome center after the service we've got some of our care night staff that are there as uh, a part of that if you'd prefer to go the uh, the counseling route maybe that's a, a better connection for you we have approved counselor list our staff and our elders uh, you know do the vetting of some counselors and so we'd love to recommend 
uh, counselors to you. So just call our care office during the week here and we'll get you connected uh, right away. Third, uh, Dr. Struthers has a book that's available at Resource and I'd love for you to head out there and pick up a, a copy or two. I think we've got a slide there of it, Wired for Intimacy, How Pornography Hijacks uh, the male brain. So you can get that at resource following. And then lastly, if you're here and you're like, boy, I just feel like I've got to talk to somebody now. I need to take a, a next step now before I even leave the property. Uh, we have got uh, Dr. Struthers and our care staff and some pastors to be back in our welcome center. I encourage you as we close here to head back there. Don't worry about it being weird because there's people back going back to the welcome center for a whole bunch of different reasons. So just go back there and say, I'd love to talk to somebody about uh, the message today. So I pray that uh, if, you, if this is a behavior, if these are issues that you're dealing with, that you will do something. You'll take a next step, and uh, that that'll start with uh, confession. It'll start with asking for forgiveness and then looking to take a practical step of, uh, of healing and hope.